0: Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Last week, the International Court of Justice, known as the ICJ, ordered Russia to immediately stop the war in Ukraine. The court is part of the United Nations and is the world's highest court. But despite this ruling against Russia... Putin is still waging war. So what does this decision actually mean? And will it change anything?
1: But in the face of Russia's concerted and shameless aggression, what can and should this court do? Obviously, you should act immediately to prevent irreparable prejudice to the rights of the Ukrainian people and of Ukraine.
0: That's Harold Hongju Ko speaking at the ICJ. He's one of Ukraine's lawyers in the case against Russia, and he's also the Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale University. He joins us to talk about what effect this decision will have and what could happen next. This is The Decibel. Harold, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So last week, the International Court of Justice ordered Russia to, to end the war. Were you surprised by that decision?
1: Uh, no, that's what we asked for. And uh, we got a ruling 13 to 2 on the key provisions and um, 15 to nothing on an order not to aggravate the dispute. So that's exactly what we were hoping for.
0: And what was the case then that, that led to this ruling? Yeah, if
1: I can go back, as you know, in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea. They shot down an airliner, a Malaysian airliner.
0: And over eastern Ukraine, something catastrophic happened. 298 people were aboard, all killed.
1: The Globe's Washington. And then they recognized or tried to work with taking over eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk. At that time, the Ukrainian government asked me and colleagues at a law firm if we'd represent them at the International Court of Justice. Um, It has 15 judges from different nationalities who are elected to nine-year terms by majorities of the General Assembly and the UN Security Council. And what they can do is issue an order very fast. In our first case, uh, we got an order from them in about five weeks. And uh, a few weeks back uh, we met and we talked about what we would do if Putin invaded.
0: So was this actually before February 24th, before the Russian invasion?
1: Yeah, you know what they say is, if you wanna pull a rabbit out of a hat, you gotta get the rabbit into the hat. Um, So we developed the arguments and um, put them in writing. Um, And then the bombing began and everybody was shell-shocked. Our clients Mm -hmm. finally reached us. Uh, They had just driven 26 hours to the Carpathian Mountains and we're in a mountain lodge, and we explained uh, what we were proposing to do. They literally didn't know what day it was. At one point, one of them said, well, we could do this tomorrow because it's Friday. And we said, no, actually, today is Friday. Mm -hmm. So they authorized us to go ahead, having checked with President Zelensky. He then tweeted about the case, uh, and we filed the documents. So they scheduled the argument for March 7th, Uh, We appeared in the Hague and argued uh, and then we got the ruling nine days later, March 16th, which is what what you were referring to.
0: And so what was the argument that you brought forward there?
1: It was a little bit of a jujitsu. Putin, as you know, has been lying uh, from the start. He he lied about the facts. He said that Ukraine had uh, been committing genocide in Ukraine against its own people. Uh, and that they were a bunch of neo-Nazis. Everybody knows this is untrue, but he said it repeatedly. And based on that factual lie, he made a legal lie, which is he has a legal authority to prevent the genocide, the fake genocide that's occurring by sending troops into Ukraine. But what I think he didn't realize was that, or didn't plan for, is that uh, both Ukraine and Russia are parties to a treaty from 1948 called the Genocide Convention which obliges all nations to punish genocide if it occurs. Hmm. So the jujitsu part was, you know, normally one country is charging another with committing genocide. So we decided to charge them with making false allegations of genocide and then relying on them to use force on a false basis. If they're using force on a fraudulent basis, the short-term remedy or relief is to tell them to stop doing the military operations. So we asked for a suspension of military operation. Hmm. And that's the order we got last week, suspend immediately all military operations. So what was Russia's response to all of this? They couldn't get their act together to appear in the court. What happened is they had a group of lawyers who had been representing them in their other case, and they all quit, basically saying that what the Russians are doing is indefensible.
0: Did they, did they actually say that, yeah, yeah. that this was they, indefensible?
1: They sent a letter just saying we quit. Uh, one of them went on LinkedIn and uh, gave a fuller explanation. But you know, it was pretty clear that this is not what they bargained for. So Russia sent in a letter the day before the hearing saying we're not showing up. Uh, on the day of the hearing, they actually sent in a letter in which they made some very uh, lame arguments and the, and the court just sort of swept by them. They said they had a right to commit military action to prevent genocide. And therefore, they had a right to recognize these paramilitary groups, uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic as independent states. And then they had a right to defend them, self-defense as accomplices. You know, this would be like if I sent um, if I was a mob boss <laughs> and, and I sent um, thugs into your house to steal things. And then when you respond, I say I'm acting in in uh, self-defense of, your, of the accomplices that I sent into the house. It's just a ludicrous mm-hmm. argument. The court didn't take it seriously.
0: Harold, is, is that not the same argument that they made in, in 2014 with Crimea?
1: They've been making this argument pretty persistently since 2014, using the phrase genocide, using the phrase neo-Nazis. Uh, you know, they're calling Zelensky, who is Jewish, a uh, neo-Nazi, which is absolutely ludicrous.
0: What does it mean for the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, to order Russia to end the war? How can it make it do that?
1: Yeah, I've gotten this question from a lot of people who, you know, it's, it's interesting. They They somehow believe that courts have enforcement authority. You know, the Supreme Court of Canada doesn't have enforcement authority either. All they do is they declare something's illegal and then you need to rely on the mounties or somebody else to enforce it. You know, for example, when the US Supreme Court told Nixon to turn over the tapes, they didn't go and grab the tapes from him. But it wasn't a symbolic victory. What it showed to him was he had no political uh, capital left. It has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. So the whole point here is to, one, create an order of illegality that makes Putin an outlaw. That's what's been achieved. Putin is now an isolated outlaw in an interdependent world. Hmm. And you see how difficult that is. Now Putin, at this moment, at this very moment, cannot travel outside of Russia, he'll be arrested like Pinochet. He can't move his money, it will be attached. His children can't travel, they'll be attached. His cronies, the oligarchs, can't move their money or their yachts, or they'll be seized. And it has two very dramatic consequences. Number one, do the Chinese really now want to back him? If the Chinese send him weapons for the next stage of this, they're violating the International Court of Justice order too. And they've been very careful about being standoffish. And I'm sure that's what Biden is saying to Xi Jinping. I think it also emboldened Biden to say he's a war criminal. And so what's happening is that Putin is uh, being gradually isolated. His bargaining position is weakened. And as we move toward some kind of negotiation, he's alone. So that's what the power of law is. It's a, a branding function. He's a pariah. People say you can't enforce this order. That's wrong. Everybody can enforce this order. Everybody. Every country that imposes sanctions on Putin is enforcing the order. Uh, If Canada comes into possession of assets, they can enforce the order. It's a system of complex enforcement, different from a system of domestic enforcement.
0: But wasn't a lot of this happening before this ruling, Harold? The countries were putting sanctions on Russia, not doing business with Russia. Companies were pulling out of Russia. There were a lot of these things happening already. So what is different now with this ruling?
1: He was saying it's illegal. He was saying I'm being persecuted. He was saying we're victims. Now that argument is blown out of the water. The veneer of illegality is gone.
0: So what you're saying, essentially, then this is there's kind of this this stamp on this action now that from the international community that says this is illegal and it's indefensible.
1: Yeah, I think of it this way, Um uh, uh, in 1945, we had a U.N. charter, but we didn't have a really strong system of international laws and institution over the last 80 years. We built that network. So that's the difference between now and the end of World War II. Uh, One of the things I said in my argument was Putin's short game is force, but the world's long game is law. And it's that long game that we're triggering now in response to his illegal actions.
0: Is there a reason, though, that this all didn't happen in 2014 when when Putin invaded Crimea?
1: Uh, I think everybody in the world would now say uh, everybody underreacted in 2014. And... It's very clear that Putin was emboldened by what he got away with in 2014. And look, even then, he had two equally flimsy rationales. One, he claimed the people of Crimea had voted to have the Russians come in in this bogus referendum. And second, he claimed that uh, the people in eastern Ukraine wanted to join the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. So he sent these little green men in paramilitaries who would subvert the system. By the way, these are taxes he had used before in South Ossetia and Chechnya and um, Georgia. So he he had reason to believe it would work. But, you know, this time the world was ready.
0: We've talked about sanctions and some of these measures that countries are putting in place to isolate Russia, essentially. This seems to come back to the global market more than Justice. Like is is the global market really what decides what countries can and can't do here?
1: There's an important caveat to what you just said, Monica, which is does everybody have equal access to the global market, or do you have to be law abiding to do so? Not everybody has equal access to the global market. There are standards that have to be met, environmental standards, human rights standards, etc. The Canadian Supreme Court in a brilliant decision by the great Rosie Abella ruled that there is corporate liability for human rights conduct overseas now by the way if china wants to play in that global market and it also wants to be in bed with the russians and the world makes it impossible to do both which would the chinese rather have the russians who form a tiny percentage of their market or access to the global market which is conditioned on lawful behavior
0: I guess it's hard to see, though, because after Crimea, you know, people still traded with Russia. Putin still had access to go everywhere. Is this very fundamentally different then than, than what has happened before with Russia?
1: Well, this is one of those things we shall see. Did the world learn something from Crimea or not? You know, the problem is with Crimea is that we had a Trump presidency and, uh, you know, Trump was an enabler for Putin.
0: Our colleague, Sean Fine, uh, spoke with you and quoted you in the paper. You asked these questions when you're talking with him. I just want to quote your words back to you. Quote, can a permanent five member deliberately wage an aggressive war and and get away with it? Or will the court do anything about it? And will the UN do anything about it? What does Russia, being a permanent member of the UN Security Council, have to do with this? How does that change this situation?
1: They have a power of the veto. In the Security Council. And so in theory, you could have 14 members of the council against you and Russia veto uh, gets them to do what they want. Now, in 1950, uh, when the Russian veto paralyzed the Security Council system from acting in Korea, you know, I'm a Korean American. uh, The General Assembly was able to act under something called the Uniting for Peace Resolution because of the deadlock in the Security Council. Uh, they acted under that resolution a week ago to get a resolution. Uh, Canadians played a critical role in getting that resolution, and I think that could happen again.
0: And then, just lastly, Harold, do you think this ruling is a turning point that's actually going to have a big effect on Russia going forward here?
1: You know, um, Churchill liked to say it's not the end, it's not the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. <laughs> It's an important important first step. Uh, What I said at the court was there are many other institutions that are engaged on various aspects of this issue. The General Assembly, the um, UN Human Rights Council, the International Criminal Court, the European Court of Human Rights, all the countries in the world that are imposing sanctions, national prosecutors, but they need a spark that will come from um, a strong and clear and fast ruling of illegality by the highest court of the UN system. And I said, you don't have to do everything, but you can't do nothing. And, um, you know, if you do this, then everybody else can do their job. One reason I feel so passionate about this is that two years ago, in March of 2020, I was invited to Kiev, Ukraine, to uh, judge their international law moot court. And it was my first time in Ukraine. Uh, They invited me because I had argued for the country only a few weeks earlier. And I was met by a young international law student named Tata, who is very idealistic, excited about international law, excited about the future of Ukraine. When the fighting started, I turned on CNN and there she was. She's in full military uniform. She said she was surrounded by the bodies of dead children. I'm
0: seeing seeing my people die. I've seen all sorts of horrible things. I studied crimes against humanity at the university. I studied international humanitarian law. I never thought I would see this with my own eyes in my peaceful country.
1: And she said, where's the international law I studied? Where is it? So this case was uh, an answer to her. It's there.
0: Harold, thank you so much for, for speaking with us today.
1: Uh, my pleasure.
0: That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Rose Danin. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.